You're listening to the Eastside Church Sermon Podcast Series. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, inclusive, and justice-oriented. We are thrilled that you found our podcast, and if you'd like to learn more about our community, visit our website at eastsideatl.org. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Josh. I've been a member at Eastside here for about five years, and it's a huge honor to have the opportunity to bring a message this morning. So I'll pray real quick, and then we'll get started again. Happy Mother's Day to everyone who's here, everyone who's joining us online, everyone who's out of town visiting their own mother's churches. Uh, Happy Mother's Day all around. Lord, we just thank you for this time. I pray that you would anoint my words, that you would speak through and as necessary in spite of me, that you would be here in this place consecrated to your will, We pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So, as is often the case, the lectionary readings, uh, you may have noticed, stage a conversation across the different parts of Scripture. Earlier, we heard uh, what might be the most recognizable passage in the Bible, Psalm 23, uh, which depicts God as a shepherd, quite memorably, and then uh, in John 10, the reading, uh, Jesus is talking about how the sheep know the shepherd's voice and they recognize him. And our, our final uh, lectionary reading is, is the one I'm gonna concentrate on, but referring back to those other two uh, is from Revelation 7. And we hear very intriguing echoes of those earlier passages. So as you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. 
Now, you might be thinking, Josh, are you really going to preach from Revelation? Are you sure you want to do that to yourself and more importantly to us? But fear not, uh, although the Great Tribulation is mentioned, this will not be a rapture forward sermon. I'm much more interested in uh, this imagery all through that passage, but especially this line in verse 17 at the end. What caught my attention when I was looking at these readings is this phrase, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb will be their shepherd. That's, that's interesting, right? It's, uh, it's a little unexpected. It's a little counterintuitive. Lambs and shepherds seem like they have a distinct relation to each other. They don't seem like things that kind of bleed into each other. I did my PhD in English at Emory, and so I'm very interested in the language of Scripture, the metaphors of Scripture, the symbolism. And so when I was reading that, I thought, that's, that's interesting. What, what, what's got up to with that? So that's what I want to focus on, and especially in this Revelation passage, but in the earlier lectionary passages as well. Uh, and of course, very appropriate, we've got, we've got Shepherd Jesus over there, so that's, you know, it's very fitting in this space. But to understand this passage, let's take a step back. Revelation, we're kind of at the end, so let's maybe back up a few chapters. There's a number of other, uh, myriad other references to lambs and shepherds in scripture. So let's take a quick tour through a few of those and see if that helps give us some context for this idea that the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. So let's take it way back to Genesis. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all shepherds. Moses was a shepherd in Midian for 40 years in that middle of his life after he fled Egypt before he goes back. Uh, the prophet Amos is a shepherd. In the opening of Amos, it says he's a shepherd from Tekoa or Tekoa. If we fast forward a bit to uh, Ezekiel 34, there's a whole diatribe against the derelict leaders of Israel at the time, and it's a, it's a denunciation of them as failed shepherds. So in verse 2, the prophet says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel, because the leaders had left the people vulnerable. God himself must take over as their shepherd. So a few verses later, I feed my flock and cause them to lie down. So one of the key insights of the prophets is that the leaders are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're out for their own gain uh, instead of protecting the people and nurturing the people, so they're bad shepherds. They're, they're derelict shepherds. David, of course, uh, was a shepherd before he became king. So we had Psalm 23 as our first reading. David describes God as a shepherd to convey that God is the ultimate source of comfort and protection. That's sort of what the image is getting at, right? Again, very familiar territory. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So the shepherd is leading the, the sheep to the correct place to graze, to the place where there's good water, defends them from predators. This is part of David's preparation uh, for fighting Goliath. It's like, I've had to fight lions and bears to protect the sheep so I can handle this guy. He had some background in fending off predators. 
The shepherd endures physical hardship to preserve the sheep, even risking his or her life to defend them. That's kind of the, the gist we get there. So Jesus takes up this really rich imagery in John 10, which was our next reading. And this is one of those sort of oft-quoted passages of scripture. It has a lot of real bangers in it, you know, verses you've heard many times, very theologically rich. That's the technical term. They teach you that in seminary. So in John 10, Jesus is describing what he's up to. And he says, the sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice. And he makes one of his many, many famous I am statements, which come from John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am all these things. So he says, I am the good shepherd. The good, and, he, and he explains that immediately by saying, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So this not only identifies him with David, but it also, of course, prefigures his crucifixion, that he's going to lay down his life to protect us, humanity, the sheep, his flock. But interestingly, it also identifies him with God in Ezekiel, who takes over for the failed shepherds. In that uh, passage in Ezekiel 34 I just mentioned, God has to be the one to be the shepherd because the appointed shepherds are failing, and arguably that's what's happening uh, in Jesus' own time. There's a real intimacy between the sheep and the shepherd, right? The shepherd has to know the individual sheep. They have to know his voice. He has to be able to know when they're sick and when they're well, when they're hungry, when they're thirsty, all that kind of stuff. He repeats a few verses later, still in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So there's not only a connection between Jesus and us as the good shepherd, but he also makes this connection between himself and the Father. And this idea of this intimate knowledge, this recognition of the voice, that the flock knows the shepherd just like the father knows the son. We'll come back to that. So Jesus is our shepherd because he's willing to die for us. It's apt that in Luke we learn it's, it's the shepherds that first hear of the Messiah's birth and it's the shepherds who first pay him homage, right? The angel appears to them, and they are on the scene long before the wise men who follow the star. They're coming from much farther away. They have this longer trek to make. So the first ones to pay homage to this king born in a manger are these shepherds. So we get this really rich tapestry of imagery, if you tra trace it all the way through scripture. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are shepherds. David is a shepherd. There's all this imagery in the prophets, both the major prophets, the minor prophets. So when Jesus is telling them, I am the good shepherd, it's not coming out of nowhere for them. They, they have a lot of context for what shepherding is, what its significance is. And in the same way, I would argue that the gifts of the wise men are a sign about who Jesus is, 
the gold, the frankincense and myrrh, the fact that it's the shepherds who recognize him essentially as a fellow shepherd is also, I think, significant. It could have been anybody, right? It's not like there were, weren't other people around Bethlehem, uh, but it's specifically the shepherds that the angel goes to. So that's kind of the shepherd side of the equation. As the shepherd serves as an image of God's loving protection, the lamb is the paradigmatic image of sacrifice. So earlier in John, in the first chapter, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, different John, right? Not John uh, who wrote the gospel. He declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these words just as much would have had a rich backstory for the people who heard them, much more so than maybe we do out of context, especially if you're new to the Christian faith or you're new to the New Testament. Okay, why is he the Lamb of God? What, what does that mean? So if you think, again, back to Genesis, uh, the ram sacrificed in Isaac's place on Mount Moriah, the Passover lamb that God commands the Hebrews to slaughter and then put the blood on the door frames of their houses so that the angel of death would pass over them and their firstborn uh, men and animals would be spared. The lambs brought to the temple every single year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to be sacrificed for the people's sins. This was centuries worth of tradition and ritual and theology about um, an unblemished lamb being God's chosen sacrifice to spare people and, and forgive them of their sins. This is, you know, for centuries this is known. So when John says, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, He's making a familiar claim, but of course, it's much bigger. What does it mean to take away the sins of the world? What does it mean that he's the lamb of God, not just an ordinary lamb, right? Well, the priests have to make the sacrifices annually and even throughout the year. Jesus sacrifices himself once and for all, and essentially the whole book of Hebrews is about this idea. There are other ideas in there, but this is the big idea that Jesus is both high priest and sacrifice. He is a perfect sacrifice. He's unblemished because he's without sin. So in Hebrews 9, it says that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. And the author of the book of Hebrews makes a big deal about tracing the details of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and the way everything had to be anointed with blood and compares that to Jesus' death on the cross. And it's a very elaborate uh, parallel that explains the concept of atonement, that just as there is an earthly tabernacle where sacrifices are made by the high priest, there is a heavenly equivalent, but that heavenly equivalent is permanent, and that Jesus alone is the one who can both make and be that sacrifice because he's the son of God, because he is both human and divine, because he's without sin. Um, all of these things are tied together. Okay, so we have God as a shepherd who protects us, and then we have God as the lamb who sacrificed for our sins, and we see both of those intertwined across the scriptures. Let's look back at Revelation 7 with some of that context and see if anything reads a little differently. So in verse nine, again, the beginning of that passage, John sees a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language worshiping God. 
This doesn't especially have anything to do with sheep or shepherds, but it is a very cool and important theological point that John is specifically talking about this idea of all people's, all of humanity, right? There are no divisions, there are no um, differences among nations or linguistic groups, cultural groups, ethnic groups. Incredibly important point, not really related to, to shepherds, but it's in there. They're clothed in white robes and holding palm branches. And if you remember back like a month ago on Palm Sunday, they're waving the palm branches out of devotion and as a symbol of triumph and uh, worship, right? And they're saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's, it's easy to see the kind of shared theological universe of uh, John and Revelation. So regardless of whether the exact same person wrote both of those letters, they have a lot of shared themes, a lot of the same imagery, a lot of the same kind of language. So as Jesus observed that the sheep recognized the shepherd's voice in John 10, here in Revelation 9, the multitudes are praising the lamb. You get that same setup. The people's robes are white, of course, because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. Another famous image that we hear a lot. It's, it's in a lot of hymns. And then John has this uh, very funny exchange with one of the elders where the elder kind of asks him, like, what's going on here? And John's like, you got to tell me. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Like, you know, I am the interloper here. I am the witness. And so the elder gives John this little kind of mini poem in verses 15 through 17. So those who've been cleansed of their sin are washed in the blood of the lamb and they're serving before God's throne day and night. They neither hunger nor thirst. They're sheep who are perfectly protected by their shepherd. And the passage ends with that statement that we've been kind of revolving around. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That reference to living water, again, that's another clue that we are in a Johannine theological landscape because if you remember back to John 4, that's the scene with the woman at the well and Jesus asks the woman for water and he tells her, if you knew who asked you, you would ask for living water and then we get that whole extended conversation and the image of the living water that comes from the Spirit. So that's referenced again here, which is very interesting. There's also an interesting contrast between the flowing springs of living water and the way that God wipes away the tears of the, of the people who are there. So in this setting before the throne, life flows abundantly, but sorrow dries up, right? Their tears are dried, but the living water flows. If you hang around me long enough, you'll hear me say this thing that parallelism is the fundamental principle of Hebrew poetry. I should really get that on business cards and just give it out to people. <laughs> parallelism is the fundamental principle of Hebrew poetry. In this case, the parallelism is created by this contrast. The living water flows, but their tears are dried up, right? It's also interesting 
that the lamb will guide them to springs of living water. Will guide them to springs of living water. That's a statement of action. It's not a statement of stasis. It's a dynamic statement. It has a trajectory. They'll be guided. They're going somewhere. So despite the fact that these worshipers have clearly been redeemed, we know that because they're wearing the white robes, they've been washing the blood of the lamb, they're holding the palm branches, they're worshiping before the very throne of God. Despite that, there is still more life, capital L life, right, to be had. They haven't come to a permanent stop. This scene that John is essentially, you know, getting a sneak peek of, this is not the end, despite its magnificence, despite the fact that they are literally in God's presence worshiping, this is not the end of their journey or their life because they will still be guided to springs of living water. Although they stand before God's throne, their journey isn't quite over. That's, that's interesting. So what does it mean then for the lamb to be our shepherd? At the very least, it clearly combines these two important aspects of God's action on our behalf. God cares for us like a shepherd for the sheep, sacrifices his life for us as the sacrificial lamb is slaughtered to purify the people of their sins. Both of those things are happening in the same image. But I think we might be able to infer just a bit more from this, this idea of the lamb as shepherd. Christians believe something that is utterly scandalizing to basically everyone else. Other religious people, uh, people who are not religious, we believe that God became human. And sometimes we just have grown accustomed to that. We, we just think, oh yeah, of course, that's what had to happen. But it, it's truly a radical statement to make. It's a statement that no one else makes on the planet. The idea that this particular Jewish man, this Jesus of Nazareth, who had a mother, right, who was born, who lived, who had, you know, who is hungry, who is tired, who is angry. This, this guy in this backwater part of the world was also God. That was God incarnate. That was God in human form. That is a wild claim to make. It's a claim that many people are uncomfortable with. It's a claim that everyone that Christian tradition has labeled a heretic has been unable to reconcile and has really reached for other ways to avoid that claim. Oh, he only looked like he was human. He wasn't actually human. Oh, he's the most elevated of all created beings, but he's still a created being. Oh, he had a human body, but he didn't have a human soul and mind because he, had, he was God. All the big heresies are trying to evade this claim because it's so crazy. It's so bold. It takes the church mothers and fathers about 400 years to really work out exactly how to express it 
Uh, in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, they come up with what's known as the Chalcedonian definition. And I really toyed around with reading the whole thing and walking you through it line by line. But, you know, I, I decided to spare us all that. If you want to talk after, it's a, it's a fascinating text. But essentially what they come up with is that Jesus is one person in two natures, human and divine. They are not mixed. They are not extinguished. They are not affected. They are both preserved. He's one person, the Son of God, the Word of God, God himself as human, fully equal to us in all ways except for sin in his humanity, and fully equal to the Father and Spirit in all ways according to his divinity. And that becomes the line in the sand of orthodoxy that essentially distinguishes heresy from orthodoxy from then until now, and it's extremely intellectually challenging to grasp. I think this passage gives us a little bit of concrete language and metaphor to maybe help us grasp it a little bit better. Jesus is not just a good shepherd because he laid down his life for us. We get that. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd because he's been a sheep. He knows what it's like to be a sheep who's listening to the shepherd's voice. He's been on both sides of that equation. He's on both sides of that equation because his humanity is not disrupted by the resurrection. The resurrection is the inauguration of our new humanity. He's going before us. He's blazing a trail that we will follow. The shepherd's understanding of reality is radically different than the sheep's. The sheep has limited capacity to understand. They can certainly understand hunger and thirst. They can understand fullness. They can understand cold and warmth, physical pain. They can understand probably some degree of emotion or some version of emotion. Uh, tenderness, for, you know, a mother lamb for a child. But it's not like the shepherds, uh, it's not like the sheep in Bethlehem could tell you the geography of the Judean hillside, right? It's not like they could explain to you that Rome had conquered Judea and was in control. It's not like they could tell you how to write a poem, right? There's all these massive gaps between the shepherd and the sheep. Practical gaps, like the shepherd knows best how to find the good pastures and the, and the clear water. The sheep might be able to get there on their own, maybe the smarter sheep or the more adventurous sheep. There's so much that the shepherd knows that the sheep don't know. It's helpful to think as a metaphor God is beyond us, not just by degrees, right? But he differs from us in kind, in orders of magnitude. He's not just a, a version of us that is cranked up to maximum volume. He is beyond us. He's beyond time. He is beyond what we know as reality. So the shepherd's greater perception is a tiny metaphorical comparison of that difference, what the shepherd knows that the sheep don't know. In the same way, Jesus lives a fully human life 
where he's not like Superman with the Clark Kent disguise on, where he's really, he's always bulletproof and he can always fly, but sometimes he just pretends like he can't to blend in. That's not what's happening. That's called Apollinarianism, if you're interested. The Superman heresy. Um, he is living a life, he's the new Adam, right? So he succeeds where Adam fails. He's just like us in all ways except for sin. So he has a human will and a human mind. He does not know all things during his human life, but he is things are revealed to him by the Spirit, and he is commanded, the Spirit commands him into the wilderness, right, when he's tested. So he knows the Father's voice, as perfectly as the, as the sheep know the shepherd's voice. So I think what this verse is getting at is not just that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for us, and not just that he's the sacrificial lamb who dies for us, but that he is both the sheep and the shepherd. He is both human and divine. He is both above and beyond us and able to lead and guide us and protect us perfectly and defend us from everything but has also been there with the limitations of human life and human nature. And he himself has had to listen. Why is he praying in the garden? Why is he praying? Doesn't he know what's gonna happen? Of course he knows, but he's just as human as we are. And he can still fear the crucifixion, even as he knows and fully chooses to go to the cross. That's so why he says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, right? He's been where you are. He has been like a sheep, which makes him our ultimate shepherd. Who better to guide the flock? Lord, thank you. We pray for your scriptures. We thank you for the way that they connect and interrelate from Psalms to the Gospel of John to Revelation, that you have woven this tapestry together to let us see your word more fully and more richly, that as you speak to us across the centuries, even though many of us may never have even seen a sheep, and certainly few of us are practicing shepherds, that we can see these patterns that reveal the truth of your love. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, my name is Katie Farmer. This is Hartley. Um, and we have the joy to lead our community this morning in a time of collective prayer and confession today. Before we begin our prayers, I do want to mention, especially for visitors, um, that we are a church community that typically celebrates communion every Sunday. Um, however, our pastor, Tim, is currently on a spiritual leave, um, and we are so blessed to have so many guest preachers while Tim is out. Some of those guest preachers are United Methodist elders and, and are able to preside over communion the Sundays that they are here, and others are members of our congregation that we are blessed to learn from, like Josh today. So today and a couple of other Sundays in June, we won't be celebrating communion, but we hope you can join us next Sunday when we will be having communion and a couple of baptisms, including this little one here. Um, now let us join our hearts and minds together with God and our community through this time of prayer and confession. When I say, Lord, in your mercy, I invite you to respond with, hear our prayer. God, our creator, our protector, 
We come to you together this morning, grateful for the opportunity to worship, both here in this room and across digital space. We are thankful today and every day for mothers in our lives, for the miracle of children who make mothers through birth, adoption, and relationship. And we are thankful for those who are mothers, biologically, adoptive, and honorary. While today is a beautiful celebration of mothers and motherhood, we also hold space for those who mourn and struggle today. For those who have lost mothers, those who yearn to be mothers, and those who have been hurt by mothers or motherhood. Lord, hear the cries of those in this community who struggle today. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we also pray today for those for whom motherhood may be fearful, for those who worry that they cannot care for a child, for those whom, for whom giving birth might be life-threatening or deadly. Yeah. We pray that access to healthcare would take into account not only rights and wishes of women, but also health and well-being of both women and their children. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, remind us that at the same time, you hear our prayers as well as the prayers of those around the world. We pray today for the people of Ukraine, for the strong, resilient people who are fighting back against an egregious invasion and war. We pray for those in other countries around the world fighting their own fights against oppression, injustice, and evil. As we live in our relatively safe and comfortable country and city, let us not forget the experiences of our siblings in Christ and humankind around the world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, we continue to lament violence and injustice in our country. We thank you for leaders that remind us that justice and accountability are not the same thing and that true justice in our world means no more lives lost to unnecessary violence. As our country continues to experience inequality, bigotry, and hate toward our fellow person, we pray for wisdom on how to be leaders for equality, justice, and hope. We pray that the community of Eastside would continue to speak up in the face of injustice. We as an Eastside community lament racism, white supremacy, and fear of human rights being stripped from women, minorities, and our LGBTQ plus identifying siblings that is occurring in our country. Merciful parent, help us be for one another the community that we ourselves seek. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those in our community who are fearful, not knowing where they will access medical care, shelter, food, and warmth. I pray that Eastside would be a resource, both spiritually and physically, for those who need our support. I pray that we would give freely of our resources and ourselves to move as Christ's hands and feet in our world. We pray for our little free pantry and closet, which we fill and find emptied so many times each week, we pray for all of those who use this resource and that our congregation will be able to provide continued access to food and clothing in our community in this way. We pray for our local ministry partners that are supported by Eastside, for Wellroot, for East Atlanta Kids Club, for Brandon Towers, and for Chris 180. We pray for our national ministry partner, Reconciling Ministries Network, and for our international partner, the community of Ticolet on the island of Laganov, Haiti. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Now, God, we come to you in confession again this morning as we have so many times before. Lord, we come empty-handed and in need of your grace. 
We pray that you would hear us now as we silently acknowledge before you all of the ways in which we fall short. God of reconciliation, we thank you that no matter the state of our world or the state of our hearts, nothing can separate us from your love. God, we thank you that in acknowledging our own shortcomings, we find grace that reorients us and offers us hope. Help us live into that hope this day and every day. God, may our words of confession be accompanied by acts of reconciliation. Siblings in Christ, hear the good news. Christ died for us as we were yet sinners, and that proves God's love for us. In the name of Christ, you are forgiven. I now invite you, however you are able, to pass the peace with those in this room, in the live stream, uh, through a text message, um, through a handshake. Peace be with you, friends. Let us all go forth attuned to the voice of our shepherd, following him into those pastures and beside those waters. Go in peace, friends. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to connecting with you soon. If you'd like to experience our full church services, you can find them at youtube.com slash eastsidechurchatl. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing here at Eastside, you can find our giving portal at our website, eastsideatl.org. Be well.